Good morning. I apologize. I'm, I'm awake, I hope. Uh, I'm really excited that we get an opportunity to paint happy little clouds. My wife told me on the drive in, she goes, make sure you smile. <laughs> Success. Are you happy, honey? Um, the only people in this room that really know my journey of why I'm up here is Matt and my wife. been a very long process. It's been a painful process. But for over the last year, I've sat in that back seat. And all I've done is steep steeped in God's word, steeped in his presence. And steeped in the love of this pot. So my focus this morning is not to draw attention to myself. But I wanted I want to put all the attention on God's faithfulness. On the power of the word of God in our lives. And how important the body of Christ is to each other. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul the spirit, joints, marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. The Word of God is alive. It can only be active if you allow it to engage your heart. It has to be more. It has to become more than a pithy saying on a bumper sticker on the back of my car. It has to become something more than something that just inspires me to have a good day. So how do we allow the Word of God to accomplish this in our life? Well, it says He uses 
a sword. And there were two types of swords back then. There was the Ramphia, which was a long sword. It could have been that, or it could have been a javelin that they used in military campaigns. It would go on the right shoulder of the soldiers. It was heavy. In battle, the blade became so dull so easily. It was difficult to sharpen. And its only intent was to kill. The second sword, the Makare. This was a small sword. It was a different class of sword. It was one that belonged on the hip. And so for the soldiers, when they had to get into close combat, they could pull it out and defend themselves. They could kill the enemy. But that wasn't the only type of makara there was. It wasn't the only sword in that class. You see, the sword that the common people used was like a large butcher knife or a fishing knife. The purpose of it was to get in between the meat and the bone and make a clean cut. I never like to clean fish because it looks like I took a chainsaw to it. This type of sword was made for clean, precise cuts. Each slice had sharp intentions. The results of the makara was life-giving. It provided nutrition. It provided strength and health to the body. Today, one of our macarenas, did I say macarena? <laughs> I apologize. Uh, I've been sitting with this for like eight months. Uh, would be a modern-day scalpel used by physicians. Razor sharp, cuts with precision, and here's the most important thing. It does it without affecting any other part of the tissues and the organs of the rest of the body. The downside is when you don't have anesthetic. The healing process is long and painful, but it's necessary. This passage uses this metaphor to teach the in in spiritual implication that nothing and no one gets closer to us than God. Jesus, if you're a believer, should be dwelling in you. His Word, you're not just using your sword in defense 
of all the enemies out there. You have to allow God to take the scalpel of the Word and begin those slow, painful incisions. So I'm going to share part of my journey with you because you have been a pivotal part of it. Fifteen years ago, I apologize, after years of pain, hurt, and trauma within the church, I left. I left the in not just a church, I left the church. I would never return to serve in any church in any capacity again. I trusted no one, so how in the world could I ever love them? The pain inflicted by members of the church on me was more devastating than anything I have ever experienced in the world. So, what happened is I left the church. I created this isolative cocoon of self-preservation. And after a long, negative, abusive relationship with the church, I would take the deceptive path of becoming spiritual. The lie of serving God by myself. I didn't need to attend church to love God. The internet for years became my church. I listened to some of the best preaching and teaching and also some of the worst. Plus, I could connect with God in the beauty of Alaska. How much more spiritual can you get than that? I want you to turn to the first book of John. Because this was the book that God used to make His first incision in my heart. The book of John was written in the end of the first century. The beloved one, John, was around 85 or 90 years old when he's writing this book. in Asia Minor. He's in Ephesus. 
He's their shepherd. And so like I'm sure as all old men do, they love to tell stories. I grew up in a small town. We had a barber shop and a pool hall put together. So you were either sitting, listening to a bunch of old men get their bald heads shaved, or they were playing pinochle. Giving each other the hardest of times. But whenever someone younger was in the room, they would begin to share their stories. Some of them were humorous. Others had life lessons in them. But I tend to remember the ones that came with an affectionate warning and protection. In in 1 John, he doesn't open with acknowledgments. He doesn't even acknowledge his own self. He's just called the elder. He calls the church my little children, my friends. And as any good grandpa who is worth his salt is willing to give his children the truth, no matter how hard it how long and how hard it hurts, he gives it in love. So John uses some really strong language with his children. And if someone will turn to chapter 4 and read 19 through 21, we're going to look at that and then we're going to kind of go backwards to John 3.15. 4, chapter 4, 19 through 21. Are we in the first John? See, that's why I didn't read from here. First John 4, 19 through 21. Can someone turn to 1 John 3.15? Thank you. Mm, Thank you. When we think of Roman persecution... Roman execution, what do we think of immediately? The cross. It was one of the most heinous forms of execution there was. 
but they were, they had it down to a science torture and execution. A method that they used is when somebody was convicted of murder, what they would do, it was they would take the corpse of the victim, they would stand it up face to face with the murderer, and then they would chain it. They would wrap the chains around it. It was impossible to move. You could barely breathe. The only thing you could do was wait until the decaying, rotting corpse began to infect you. Your death was imminent. My hate for the church was my conviction of death. Although all those who hurt me, who I thought traumatized me, are 20 years removed from where I am now, and some of them have even passed on daily. I looked into foot in the face of every one of them. Every family member, every pastor, every minister, every believer, I peered into their eyes. I spent years retelling the stories of spiritual trauma to anyone that would listen or anyone that could commiserate. My infection was so deep and gross that my life was saturated by it. Everyone could smell me coming. It was embedded in my soul. I became so dark and so infectious that I started spreading the disease of unforgiveness, of hate. But after reading these two particular scriptures, hating my brother was one thing that I could live with. But God calling me a liar? And a murderer brought me to my knees, literally and figuratively. The moment I realized this, the chains began to break. The bodies began to fall one at a time. This newfound acceptance of God's love for the body of Christ meant that I had to go through a long period of repentance and lament. For me, that was easy. I don't have a problem with saying I'm sorry, taking responsibility. What was the difficult part was the process of being restored back into a body. That would mean that I would have to commit to live with other members of the body. I would have to learn to live in the tension 
of the relationship that we are called to live. I would have to try to be a functioning part of a body. I would have to learn to walk through someone else's pain with them and allow them to walk with them in mine. I would have to learn how to forgive them and allow them to forgive me. And I would have to love them. And I would desperately need their love. If I was to be a healthy part of a believer's body of believers, I had to take a look at my symptoms of possible infections. God and I had to create a sort of syllabus, if you will. This was going to be important in my personal transformation of learning to love the church again. I had to listen to God. I had to follow His leading. This process happened in a couple of stages for me. Spending time in God's Word. For almost two years, I was pretty consistent with that. I was reading Scripture. I was going... uh, I was praying. One thing was missing. I wasn't in a church. Two years. So one of the important things of the Word of God, when you allow it to not just benefit you as in, bless me, Lord, but to say, what do you need to extract out of my heart? So the Word of God began to expose all of my sins. My lack of maturity. My lack of discipline with reading and prayer and giving. I was so easily offended that I would quit everything. I would quit jobs. I would quit churches. I would quit relationships. I cut off family, friends, and opportunity because I just was so offended. I was cancel culture before we even understood what it was. So what do you do when God offends you? Not your brothers, your sisters, not the world, but what about when you're offended by God? I want to share a journal entry of some of the conclusions that I came to. April 14th. 2021, I had to become keenly aware of my unrealistic expectations that I put on a pastor, that I put on a congregation, and that I put on services. I had to go in with no ulterior 
motives. I didn't go in looking for a title, a position, something that somehow would move me up the chain. Once I was committed, I'd have to be present in all situations. I wouldn't walk away because I got offended. Number four, I would learn how to love the church as Christ loved the church. And number five, I would grow in my spiritual disciplines. So over the next year or more, I conducted spiritual reconnaissance. I kept a low profile. I was quiet. I observed. I tried not to be too judgmental. But I only had two main criteria. One was solid preaching and teaching. Second was to observe how the body treated itself. Was church just on Sunday or were were they a part of each other's lives throughout the week? Because if I was going to subject myself to the church again, and the true community of believers, I was done with performance Christianity. I wanted someone that I could look into and say, man, I am hurting. I could call up and say, dude, Matt, Jason, please pray for me. Someone could see me and say, Rob, could you just pray for me? Could you just embrace me? Because I need it. I sat in a multitude of churches, all sizes, all denominations. Some I attended once. Some I attended a multitude of times. I went to their men's breakfast. I went to their coffee houses. And if you ever really want to get to know people, go to those breakfasts. Go to those coffee houses because that's when you realize what their priorities really are. I had a lot of conversations with pastors and members of churches. Although this was a very long season, It was a season of growth for me because I would not compromise what I knew God wanted for me. So I finally darkened the doorstep of AC Square. Over a year ago, Matt and I had several conversations leading up to this point. He gave me a couple recommendations of churches. I had visited AC Squared once just as a show of support to Matt. So after that, my searching continued. But when I was looking for convenience, something close to home, I couldn't find it. 
It wasn't because of anything any particular church minister or member did. I just didn't feel though, this is where God wants me. So after that, you know you got to plant seeds? So the seed that Matt had planted in me, you know, hey Rob, I got these churches you can look at, but hey, you know, you're always welcome at AC Square. There was no pressure. There was no anything. We're here for you when you're ready. That's all it was. So as my search continued, Matt and I continued to speak occasionally. We would pray. He would encourage. So then one day, I said, I'm going go to <laughs> I'm gonna go to Matt's church. Worst thing I ever said. Because my wife looked at me and she goes, whose church? And I'm not very fast. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm going to go visit Matt's church. She goes, you see, don't you see the problem here, Rob? You're bringing up past patterns. You're going to church for a man. Okay. She wasn't yelling me to put away the dishes, so I was good. So I came. I remembered what it was like the one time I visited to support Matt. Music was pretty good. Church was small, but it was friendly. The people... There's something about the people. I didn't know, but I was like, mm, maybe. Then I heard Matt speak. I thought for the longest time he just knew how to play bass. <laughs> I was shocked by his ability to teach and preach the Word. So that back row has been my observation deck. It has been the most uncomfortable, challenging year of my life. I sat where I thought I would never be accepted or that I belonged. However, after week went by and week went by, I slowly became a little more unguarded each week. I very slowly allowed myself to interact with the body. My transformation of being a part of the body had begun. I had witnessed 
corporate lament. I had witnessed corporate praise. And the thing that blew me away, that probably was the most mind-blowing thing, is when Matt, Brent, or anybody else stood up here, they were allowed to challenge the speaker. Has anybody else experienced that anywhere? I've been raised in the church since I was 15 years old. You shut up and you accepted what the man in the pulpit had to say. Because he was right. (laughs) Matt's like, someone will stand up in the middle of the service. I'm like, bro, what are you doing? You know? And there's been other times where after the, the uh, the word is ministered, Matt will stand up here with somebody else and say, okay, give me what you got. Ask me questions. He never expects anybody to agree with him. He just wants you to think for yourselves. Been in a church where somebody says, oh, I'm not getting fed. You show me a sheep that is full grown that still needs a shepherd to show him where the grass is. I had the experience of being around a group of the men from church. This was another experience that blew my mind. The men in this church are serious, and the women are very serious about rightly dividing God's Word. Here, it is not about being right. It's about getting it right. I watched men go at each other like it was a Mexican cockfight. And I'm, I'm thinking, whoa. I'm just going to take a step back. And it was intense. It was like fight club. But... It's no longer Fight Club because I'm telling you about Fight Club. But what I saw afterwards challenged my way of thinking. Those same men, some of them who were red in the face. Afterwards, prayed together. The next day, they were in church together. That, my friends, is iron sharpening iron. I want to uh, share my last journal entry. August 8th, 2022. Slowly becoming part of a church. AC Square is where I've decided to call home. It's so different. The congregation has actual part in the service. They read Scripture. They're allowed to question the preaching and teaching. Unity, not conformity, is what is looked for. 
This, for me, is a place of authenticity. You can be yourself here. Whether you're really going through it in your marriage. Whether you're really going through it at work. You can let this congregation know. I'm realizing that although I really enjoyed Matt's energy, his preaching, if I'm to be honest, that's not what drew me here. It was the love. that you had for each other. If you're here this morning and you call AC Squared your family, yet you harbor past resentment from past churches and believers, I would ask to you consider, for you to consider a forgiving them. I'm sure a lot of you have been a part of church, church splits, church closures, and uh, relationships that you have had for years have ended. And you still allow them to consume your mind and your heart. I would ask that you consider forgiving them. So that where you're at now, whether it's here or whether it's in another body, God can use you and move through you. I apologize for taking the amount of time I did, but You not only love God well, at least in my eyes, you love each other well. You guys probably had no clue who I was, most of you. Because I kept everybody at a distance. I needed to know. I needed it proven that this is where I was really going to let you see me and I was willing to see you. Thank you. Amen. It is wonderful to be a part of a body that cares about what God says. I'm just blessed to be here. You know, to open up uh, this morning with the praise and the worship, you know, the Bird family and uh, Johnny and Tet, you know, they make a lot of sacrifices. Kendall and Tom, I mean, week after week, Isaac. People are just here. TJ, Ryan, they're in the back. They're serving week after week after week, and there are many other names that I could mention, and it's just wonderful. And then Jen gets up here, and she says, hey, the community is making space for you to get connected. Come out. The church wants to pay for this opportunity for you to have fun. We're going to remove all of the obstacles so that you can just be in the room, and we're going to get to know one another. And then Rob gets up here, and he just drops a word that is convicting and challenging and inspiring, and I don't even know if I have to say anything, right? <laughs> But God has more to say. 
This is why we don't put a time uh, that we, this is why on the website we only put the beginning of our time service because we're not going to squander what it is that God is asking us to do and we're not going to squelch the spirit here. We are going to submit to what God is doing and we're going to ask him to move because he's in us and he's in our midst. And it's through opportunities like that that he changes and transforms us. Amen? Amen. Now, today we're launching into our sermon series on the book of Jonah. And so you guys know how it works around here, right? We don't just open up the book and start exegeting verse by verse because we need to get familiar with the proverbial lay of the land, right? The Bible, we're separated by thousands of years. Different culture, different language, different customs, different traditions. The geography that existed then has new borders now, right? It is a whole different world. We're reading a book right now as a church called The Epic of Eden, and she addresses that as the great barrier. And we have to cross that great barrier, that divide, if we want to get into the mind of the author, and we want to understand what it was that the audience actually knew and understood as the author wrote or spoke. We're not interested in coming to our own conclusions. We want what the author intended and what the audience understood to inform our way of thinking. The scripture is authoritative. It was written to them and it's for us. And today we're going to start a brand new series in a brand new book that we've never explored. Now as modern students of the text, we have a desire to master dual disciplines. Okay? We're all modern students. If you are a Christian, you are required to be a student of the word. I didn't say it, God said it. You don't like it, take it up with him, okay? But as modern students of the text, we have a desire in this body to master dual disciplines. That's the reading of the word and the hearing and the listening to the text of scripture. They are separate disciplines. Now hear me, researchers in the world of neuroscience... They're surprised by what they found in the most recent brain mapping that they took. Both listening and reading were nearly identical in what parts of the brain fired in the individuals, okay? But in the body of Christ, our, our concerns transcend what's taking place in the actual brain itself. Okay, we're, we're interested in what the MRIs, the active MRIs say, but our concerns transcend what the brain is doing. Our first concern is focused on a retention of the data. Okay, so we read God's word, we hear God's word, and the whole focus is on retaining the data. Why? So that at the opportune time, we can recall what we've read and what we've heard so that we can evangelize the lost or equip the saints. That's what we're in here to do, to learn the data so that we can recall the data. The second focus that we're concerned with is mastering the physical responses of our own bodies while listening in a corporate setting. Are we aware that those are different disciplines? church being in control of what your body is doing in the midst of a room full of people where distractions exist can be difficult we're required to master that nobody's going to do it for you knowing that the text of scripture was produced in a culture dominated by oral tradition 
We're going to take the time to listen to the book of Jonah being read aloud this morning. Nobody in this church is going to sit here and say, I've never read through the book of Jonah. Because we're going to listen to it, which means you can open up your Bible and simultaneously read through it. It's only going to take about six minutes and then we'll be off to the races. Quiet your heart. Quiet your mind and still your body as you begin to master the disciplines of listening and reading. Amen. Are we ready? All right, push play. Let's get it. Jonah. Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For they knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? The sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For at night it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I have driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, 
and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Get walking, days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown! And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah 4 But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now, I don't care who you are. That story is exciting. That story is... A little over the top, if we're going to be just honest, right? <laughs> I mean, if we read it, you can like hear the irony and you can see the satire. 
So it makes you think, why would a book like this be written? (laughs) When we approach a book like Jonah, the first thing that we want to do is we want to ask questions, okay? And so I'm going to start by asking you a question. I want you to take every presupposition that you have, everything you think you know about this book, and I want you to set it to the side, okay? The reason I want you to do that is because we should never come to the Word of God with the attitude where we say or where we think, I already know this story. There's nothing new that God can teach me. So just set it aside. I'm reading 13 different commentaries to preach this series. This is the most reading that I've done to preach through a book. Because you guys deserve my best. Okay, so we're going to ask some questions this morning. What is the book of Jonah? I mean, that's a great place to start, right? What is the book of Jonah? Now, some of you in the room who have been around church for a lot of your life, you might say, well, it's one of the many canonical books found within the Hebrew Scriptures. You know, it's one of the 39 books that exists in the library of the Old Testament. Someone else in the room would stand up and be like, Jonah's one of the minor prophets. And yet another one would be like, no, Jonah belongs in the book of the Twelve. And to you, I would say, all of those answers would qualify as correct. None of those answers would be qualified as wrong. Allow me to explain. We have two graphs, and we're going to look at two other graphs after this. The MT stands for the Mesoretic Text. That's the Hebrew text in its entirety. And the LXX stands for the Subtuagent. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. These are the 12 minor prophets. Do we see anything different? In the Masoretic text, Jonah occupies position 5. But in the LXX, Jonah occupies position number 6. And some of the other books have moved around as well. We can go to the next slide, and we're going to look at the martyrdom and the ascension of Isaiah. Now, this is not a canonical writing, but it is a historical document that references all 12 of the minor prophets. Once again, Jonah is in the sixth seat, but the other books have yet again moved around. (laughs) And then we have a scroll that was found in Qumran, part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, It's incomplete as a manuscript, but it places Jonah in slot number 12 following Malachi. Now, what does an exercise like this teach us, saints? We're not doing this in vain. It shows us that the book of Jonah has always been recognized as a canonical book in the Hebrew Scriptures. And that its placement, although fluid, like the other books, 
is located in the midst of the prophetic writings as well. So when some idiot comes up to you and tells you that Constantine decided what books were going to be in your Bible, you laugh at them. And you ask them why they buy into conspiracy theories. When they come up to you and they tell you, your Bible didn't have any books in it until the Nicene Council, you laugh at them. Because that's a lie. The Nicene Council didn't even discuss the canon. They were dealing with heresies. We're not going to fall prey to the conspiracy theorists here. You don't get your theology from TikTok. You get it from the scholars. Okay? If you saw someone post something on Facebook, 99.9% chance it's a lie. And it's not their fault that they don't know how to do good research. If you're in right relationship with them, teach them how to do good research. It gives you an opportunity to speak the truth from a foundation of love. Well, laughing at somebody isn't very nice. Well, tell them to start in 1 John and see if they would rather have you laugh at them or deal with what John tells the church, right? I could laugh at you or I could call you a murderer. What's your choice? Pick your poison. It's stupid. That's the word for it. It's stupid that Christians believe lies when they have access to the truth. And it's nobody's fault but ours. Now, having identified that Jonah's placement is fluid yet consistent in the book of the 12 throughout four known historical arrangements that are hundreds and thousands of years prior to the Nicene Creed, and the Nicene Council. Same distance of time before Constantine ever walked the face of the earth. Next, we need to ask ourselves, is there anything unique about the book of Jonah in the midst of the prophetic writings? Now, for anybody who's read the Bible, read the book of Jonah, or read any of the other minor prophets, you're immediately going to say, well, yeah, there's something unique about the book of Jonah. We just had it read to us. We just were able to read along while we listened to it, right? It's sensational, to say the least. So yes, there's something unique about it. Old Testament scholars, Lasore, Hubbard, and Bush, who have written one of the best Old Testament summary books on the market to date, note that the book of Jonah is unique because it's an account of what happened to the prophet of God. It's not a collection of the prophet's messages to the people of God. Now, J. Daniel Hayes would agree. He writes that the book of Jonah is a story rather than a collection of oracles and spoken messages. And listen to this. Because of the book's narrative form, Determining the central message of Jonah is neither a straightforward or an easy task. So if you've had a preacher tell you different, let me apologize on their behalf for lying to you. The evidence for such a claim, the claim made by J. Daniel Hayes, is grounded in the reality that scholars continue to remain divided on the issue. What's the issue they're divided on? They're divided on the central message of Jonah. What does that tell us? That tells us that the book is deep and wide. 
It's so much more than a children's story. The church needs to reclaim books like the book of Jonah. It's exclusively almost, not always, but it's almost exclusively entirely relegated to the children's Sunday school classroom. And that's wrong. That is wrong. Tim Keller writes that the book of Jonah reflects the heart of God. If you ever needed a reason to study a book, that's it. (laughs) Do we not want to be reading books that reflect the heart of God? In the book of Jonah, we can see God's love for both societies and people beyond the community of faith. And I agree with Tim Keller that the book of Jonah puts this in 4K for the reader, that God's love is for the nations. It's my opinion that the church, maybe now more than ever, needs to take a good, hard look at what it is that the book of Jonah seeks to teach us. We need to be willing to ask ourselves, saints, in what ways might a book like Jonah radically transform the current ways that I think? Because the way that I think needs to be transformed. Don't believe me? Read Romans. Are we praying, God, change my worldview so that my worldview reflects the way you see the world? Or do we think we've already got it all figured out? Are we the smartest person in the room? Nobody likes that person. It's for these reasons and others that we've decided as a church to slowly work our way through this wonderful little book. Having briefly addressed our first two questions, what is the book of Jonah, and is it unique, we may now ask if there are any misconceptions that the modern church has when it comes to the book of Jonah. Now, there are many, and so I had to select one for the sake of time. So let's tackle it. Now, I believe after we address this issue, it's going to reveal the potential for other issues that may need to be addressed in how we decide to approach books like the book of Jonah. Now, this one that I selected is going to get me into hot water. But I don't care. (laughs) Because you don't have to agree with me. You know, challenge everything that comes out of the pulpit. Why? Because questions demand answers. This one's going to get me into trouble because I work with the Perspectives Missions team in Alaska to host a 15-week missional semester that teaches people how the text of Scripture reflects the heart of God for the nations. Then it takes the people through the history of the church, then it addresses the culture of the world, and then it addresses the strategies and how to take the gospel out. And what I'm about to say is going to get me in a lot of trouble with them when they hear it. Jonah is not a missionary. He's not! (laughs) Jonah is not a missionary. Therefore, the book of Jonah is not a treatise on local or global missions. Hear me out before you tune me out. I'm saying that Jonah is not an evangelist. Therefore, one may argue that he's not a missionary, which means that the book of Jonah should not be associated with missional work. Now, this is a massive claim, so let's give some evidence for the claim that I'm making. 
A, Jonah has no desire to go to Nineveh. In fact, his rebellion causes him to flee in the opposite direction. This is rebellion against the word of God and the will of God. This is a disdain for the heart of God. There's no other way around it. That's not a good missionary. (laughs) The only message Jonah preaches is one of coming destruction. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now we could do the dance and we could talk about the Hebrew language and we could discuss how this could be a play on words. But in the plain reading of the text, this appears to be a message of coming destruction. There's no call to repentance. His message includes no hope for deliverance. And Jonah offers no instruction about the God of Israel. Old Testament scholar Leslie Allen observes that neither the sailors nor the Ninevites are converted to Jewish monotheism. So if you heard someone tell you that the sailors on the boat became the first Christians, they're wrong. The first Christians weren't mentioned until the book of Acts, first of all. But these people weren't converted to Jewish monotheism. They were pantheistic. They have no problem worshiping another god in the midst of the pantheon. The text offers no evidence that they became Gentile proselytes to Judaism. If you were a Judaistic, if you were proselytized into Judaism, you would know and understand that temple sacrifice at Zion was the only appropriate place for sacrifice to Yahweh. You could not make sacrifice on the boat or on the land and be in Torah observance. So they'd have been in violation. Another commentator observes that Jonah's preaching did not result in spiritual conversion. The outcome appears to be a type of social reform over spiritual reform. Let's look at the text again. Remember, this is a pagan king who's speaking, okay? The worst of the worst, by the way. Let them call out mightily to God, turn from his evil ways, and from the violence that is in his hands. These are his instructions to his people. The text doesn't explain what the pagan king means when he says, let my people cry out mightily to God. You know, people in Islam do that. (laughs) They're not crying out to Yahweh. They don't worship Esau, Jesus. They reject the fact that the father had a son. (laughs) So what does it mean to call out mightily to God? That's a great question to be asking. And what does it mean to turn from your evil ways and from the violence that's in your hand? This is far from a claim to reject the gods of the world and to embrace only the worship of the true God of gods. So if you're going to read conversion and salvation into that, you're going to go beyond what the text teaches. You can do it. But I wouldn't advise it. And finally, Jonah is disappointed and angry when the people of Nineveh respond favorably in the eyes of God. That's not a good missionary, everybody. Jonah is not a missionary. He's not an evangelist. Therefore, you shouldn't read the book of Jonah as a missional treatise, okay? 
I don't know what to tell you. My whole life, up to this point, my whole time in perspectives, I'd had a different perspective. Started studying, started reading. I was like, the way that I think needs to be reformed. It's not wrong to be wrong. It's wrong to know that you're wrong and to have a desire to stay there. In the end, I think the text is clear. Jonah doesn't have a missionary's attitude. And he doesn't preach a missionary's message. One may argue that the outcome in Nineveh appears to be a panicked response to a threat of destruction. 40 days! And the town will be overthrown. The text doesn't appear to offer an acknowledgement of the claims of God on their lives or an acceptance of Yahweh's lordship. So you can't truly argue for conversion on a spiritual level. You can read it into the text, but you can't find it in the book of Jonah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's put it in our context. Yeah, yeah. No, this is a great question. We're going we're gonna to unpack all this stuff in more detail, but this is a great question. I'm hoping for questions like this. How many times have you heard someone who's not a Christian say, God, if you just get me out of this, I swear I'll never do it again. Sound like a vow? Okay. You see, we love to read stuff into the Bible that's not there. But they made a vow to God. You ever read about Nebuchadnezzar? <laughs> You ever read about the priests of Dagon who knew that the ark was here and it caused the statue to fall over and they would never put their foot where the ark once stood? Sounds like reverence. Reverence is far from salvation. Okay? We read so many things into the Bible that just aren't there. I'm not saying that you can't hold that position. I'm not saying that you can't disagree with me. I'm just saying around here, I would say we're text-driven. Art would say we're text-led. Let's let the Bible speak, huh? If you're unconvinced by the data, at minimum, I think that we can all agree on this point. When we read the book of Jonah, we see a God who is on mission, even when his spokesperson, the prophet, refuses to be. How about that? If you want to hold to the book of Jonah being missional, let's argue that it's the God of the universe who's on mission when his prophet refuses to be. Having addressed the reality that Jonah is not a missionary, we may now ask the question, who is Jonah? Now to properly answer this question, we need to place Jonah into space and time. So let's ask, who's Jonah? And the answer to this question is not as obvious as you may think it is. The book of Jonah never identifies Jonah as a prophet. It doesn't. So how can we, the church, know for certain that Jonah functioned as a prophet of God? Well, I'm glad you asked. The only other place in the whole of the Old Testament where Jonah is mentioned is 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 through 25. So let's read it together. And you have to read this type of passage very slow because it is packed to the gills. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, 
Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Let's just stop there. Do we know what the author's doing? He's addressing the post-united kingdom of David. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of the southern kingdom Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, the northern kingdom, began to reign in the capital city of Samaria. Israel is no longer united under David's rule. We know that it split after Solomon died. And so the author of this piece of literature is making us aware of that. And he did, speaking of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Oh, so wait. The first Jeroboam is actually Jeroboam the second. Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. You have the father and the grandfather. Okay? Which he made Israel to sin. And he restored the border from Israel, the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the sea, uh, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gethhefer. So now we're told that Jonah is a prophet, and now we're told where Jonah is from. Anybody know where to look for the prophet Jonah outside the book of Jonah prior to this morning? Now you know. Make a little mental note of it. 2 Kings 14. Command F, Jonah. It'll highlight the word right there on your computer screen for you. Now this portion of the text, like I said, communicates a massive amount of information. First, it places the ministry of Jonah after the United Kingdom, which we just discussed. So after the kingdom was split, we know that Jonah's life took place sometime after that. Now the split in Israel took place in 931 BC. So we're putting Jonah into space and time. So when someone tells you that your book is just fiction, laugh at them. Because they're wrong we can put Jonah into space and time. And he's not just mentioned in the Bible either. <laughs> it teaches us that he was from Geth Hefer. Oh, we can plot Geth Hefer on a map. Again, your Bible's not a fiction book. You can see Geth Hefer is just east of Megiddo, right here. This is the Sea of Galilee, so it's just west of the Sea of Galilee. Anybody want to take a guess who did most of their ministry in and around this area? You know, people all over the world travel to the Holy Land to get baptized in these types of waters. <laughs> so we can plot it on a map, right? Jonah was born in and operated in around the city of Gethhefer, but that's not it. We talked about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. What's most interesting about this passage in 2 Kings is that it's written from a southern kingdom perspective. 
How do we know that First and Second Kings is written from a southern kingdom perspective? Because it was authored after the northern kingdom went into exile at the hands of Neo-Assyrian Empire. So Jonah's so popular that the southern kingdom authors actually include him in their writings under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Southern kingdom good, northern kingdom bad, but you know what? This prophet, we're still going to include him. Third, we learn that Jonah occupied the office of prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II, who ruled from 789 to 748 B.C. Fourth, we discovered that the prophet Jonah had no issue delivering a message of grace and mercy to Israelites who did evil in the sight of the Lord However, he refused to embrace a similar worldview and practice when asked to carry the word of the Lord to the Gentiles. Jonah prophesied that God was going to extend the borders of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of Arabah. That sound like a good or a bad thing, a blessing or a cursing? Blessing. Jonah prophesied this while all of Israel, as well as its king, did evil in the sight of God. So Jonah has an inconsistency in his character and his nature. He's willing to proclaim grace and mercy to the people of God, ethnic Israel at the time, but he's not willing to proclaim that same message of grace and mercy to the pagan. It's for these reasons that the church needs to be studying the book of Jonah because that is straight up wrong. Everybody needs the gospel. Everybody needs an equal opportunity to respond to the gospel. And if we get in the way of that, that's a great conversation that I'm looking forward to not having with God at the Bema Seat of Judgment. Yep. There you go. Yep. Yep. So that's a great New Testament intertextual connection. When you read the book of Jonah, she would say Peter refused to make the same mistake Jonah made. That would be our conclusion. Now, having mentioned the city of Nineveh, we should attempt to get familiar with plotting its location on a map as well, just like we did Jonah's hometown. So let's see if we can do that. This is Nineveh. This is Babylon. Anybody know what Babylon is in the modern day? It's Iraq, right? Iraq. So you can plot from here out the surrounding geography. The borders have changed, okay? But the land is the same. Here is Judah, the southern kingdom, 
Jerusalem, its capital city. We know that the northern kingdom is just to the north of it. We know that Geth Hefer is somewhere here, just west of the Sea of Galilee. So we're looking at Nineveh and Jonah's hometown, and we're saying it's nowhere near his home of record. It's approximately 500 miles. No planes, trains, and automobiles, ladies and gentlemen. How do you think he's going to get there? Now, remember, when we look at maps like this, we're doing our best to place the book of Jonah into space and time. Now, I may have more to say about this in weeks to come, but for now, I'd like us to realize that Nineveh's landlocked. Okay? Nineveh's landlocked. The only body of water in close proximity to it is the Tigris River. Fresh bodies of water can be near landlocked areas of geography because a landlocked area of geography is landlocked in isolation from the sea, not from fresh body waters, fresh bodies of water. Now notice that Jonah hops on the ship in Joppa, trying to run as far east as he can from Tarshish, and Nineveh's way over here. Yeah, did I say, I got that backwards, yeah. Going west, and he's supposed to travel east. So here's the deal, everybody. The fish swallows Jonah somewhere in here. Seeing all of this on a map is helpful because it keeps us from buying into the lie that Jonah was somehow vomited out onto the shores of Nineveh. Because he wasn't. There are no shores of Nineveh. <laughs> this is why we're thankful for Veggie Tales. Because for all that VeggieTales gets wrong in the story of Jonah, they got this thing right. The whale spit him out. He hits the sand. He looks up. He's like, Reginald, there's a camel. He jumps on the camel's back, and it actually shows him traversing the desert to get to Nineveh. So for all that VeggieTales gets wrong, they nailed it there. And for that, we're thankful. I was going to discuss the fish when we get to the fish. But do you have a question? Okay. All right. Yeah. Having identified the city of Nineveh on a map, as we've just done, placing it into space and time so that people can't tell you that your book is a fiction book, we can now ask the question, who are the Ninevites? Nineveh was one of the many cities located within the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrian kings and their people were a proud and cruel people. Archaeology and the records that we have from it brag of live dismemberment. They made parades of human heads, and they didn't just make parades of human heads. They required the friends and family of the deceased to carry them on elevated poles. The Assyrians boasted of their practice of stretching live prisoners with ropes so that they could skin them alive and then they would hang the skin on the city walls that they had just conquered. They pulled out tongues and testicles from live victims and they were known for burning the young alive. These are just some of the things that the Assyrian empires brag about in the archaeological records that we have today. And not just one king or two, many. 
Given the historical context and what we know to be true about the Assyrian Empire, we can understand why Jonah decided to run in the opposite direction. It makes total sense. And us Westerners in our pious air-conditioned sanctuaries like to say, I would never do that. Well, let me buy you an airplane ticket to Iran or Syria, and let me ask you to find the headquarters for ISIS, and let me ask you to walk in there, and let me ask you to cry out against them and leave your family and your life behind. Any takers? Not a single one, huh? (laughs) We're all like Jonah. (laughs) The pious people. Well, Jonah was a prophet of God and he would have had the Hebrew scriptures and he would have known that God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. And that's a more difficult thing to do than lay your own life down to take the life of your son. And God was faithful to deliver Isaac. So Jonah should have had no problem going to Nineveh. Let me buy you a plane ticket, bro. (laughs) First class, it'll be your last travel. It's the least I can do for you. I've been in Iraq and in Afghanistan, and I have fought against the Taliban and ISIS. I wouldn't recommend it. But this is the kind of thing that God will ask of his people. I think we need to learn to have a little bit more grace when we approach the text of the Scripture and we read about the heroes of the faith because they are heroes, as a matter of fact. Now, having scratched the surface on the book and its uniqueness, dealt with some of the misconceptions, answered who is Jonah and who are the Ninevites by placing them into time and space, I think it's time to talk about the theology of the book. But before we do that, I know some of you are wondering, well, are we going to discuss the author and how about the date of the book when it was written and the genre of the book to include the New Testament connections? So allow me to briefly touch on these things. Then we'll return to the theology of the book And we'll wrap it up, okay? In regard to the author of the book, I think Peter Kriegel says it best. From a technical perspective, the book is anonymous. We're not told who wrote it. So to argue for an author would be 100% conjecture. Saints, it's just best to admit that we don't know who wrote the book. I can think of five study Bibles off the top of my head that have been written by famous pastors in America who would tell you that Jonah was written by Jonah. My first question is, how did he know what the sailors did after he was swallowed by the whale? God told him. Oh, that's a good answer. You can't watch from the belly of the whale, bro. I mean, there's so many questions you could ask. Jonah would have had to get vomited up. He would have had to track down these sailors. He would have had to interview them. And he would have said, could you please tell me about your experience after I was cast into the sea? And you've got famous pastors in America who are selling, making millions off their study Bibles. And they're going to tell you, Jonah wrote the book. And some of you have the study Bibles that I'm talking about right now. Hey, I... Had one for years, you know? It's not bad, it's just not right. (laughs) What about dating the book? Do we know when it was written? Again, the answer is no. We don't know when the book was written, especially when it was compiled in its final format, the version that we read. 
There's no consensus on this. I'm not gonna bore you with the evidence for pre-exilic biblical Hebrew based on syntax over and against the post-exilic view that spotlights the use of Aramaisms as well as the potential for Persian influence on the book. In my opinion, John Walton offers the best answer. On the late end of the spectrum, the book of Jonah must have been written in its final form prior to second century BC. The evidence for this rests in the writings of the intertestamental period. Again, we have books that are outside of the Bible that reference the prophet Jonah. These books were written no later than 2nd century BC and they mention the prophet Jonah. So the book had to be in circulation in its final format when they were reading and writing. So on the late end of the spectrum, we turn to the intertestamental literature. The Apocrypha. Don't let anybody tell you that reading these books is going to hinder your Christian walk. Because when someone asks you when Jonah was coming together in its final format, this is going to be the evidence that you're going to stand on. Now, Tobit is good, but I think the wisdom of Ben Sirach is better. And trust me, Paul studied the wisdom of Ben Sirach. May the bones of the twelve prophets Revive from where they lie, for they comforted the people of Jacob and delivered them with confident hope. Anybody want to take a guess at how many prophets existed in the history of Israel? It was a lot more than 12, ladies and gentlemen. So what does the 12 prophets tell us? We go back to the historical documents that we were looking at earlier, and we say, oh, that's the book of the 12 in the Hebrew Bible. That's the minor prophets in our Bible. Ben Sirah, a pious Jew in 2nd century B.C. who started a school for Pharisees, wrote this. That means he had access to all the minor prophets no different than we have access to them today. The evidence is grounded in history. On the early end of the spectrum... The book of Jonah could not have been written any earlier than his life. Duh, right? And we talked about the life of Jonah occupying the reign of Jeroboam II who ruled Israel during the first half of the 8th century. So pick your poison. Late date, early date, anywhere in the middle, nobody really knows. Again, it's conjecture. What about the genre of the book? Well, if you want to start a fight, just mention the genre of Jonah. I mean, it's a great way to start a fight, especially with Christians. You know? I want to ask this body to be different than other local bodies. If somebody in this body believes that the book of Jonah is a parable and not a historical narrative, don't tell them that they have a low view on the inspiration of Scripture. They're, don't tell them that they doubt God. You can believe that the book of Jonah is a parable and still believe that in the beginning God created and still believe that Jesus was born of a virgin he lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve. He was crucified. Three days later, rose again in the body. He ascended and was exalted and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you make the book of Jonah the litmus test for somebody's view on inspiration, 
you are in the wrong, no different than the people at Answers in Genesis are in the wrong when they say if you get creation wrong, you get the gospel wrong. How many of us were saved before we ever read Genesis? So you, that just defeats their fallacy right there. Daniel Timmerman says it best. He reminds us that the genre of Jonah has been long debated. If you got a Christian in the body who believes that the book of Jonah is a parable, ask them two questions. Is it because you doubt that God could create a fish and appoint it to swallow a man and spit him out on the, sh- on the, on the shoreline so that he could travel to his intended place? And if they say yes, then ask them how they reconcile the creation and the resurrection narrative. But if they say, I believe that the book of Jonah was written as a parable to teach Israel a theological message because that's what the author intended and the audience understood, they have not violated the principles of inspiration. They just haven't. And Timmerman reminds us, Timmer, sorry, he reminds us that the genre of Jonah has been long debated, and we, the church, would do well to know that the debate is not merely academic. Questions abound. They always have and they always will. Is the book of Jonah mythological? Is it allegorical? Is it parable? Is it satire? Is it historical? Professor Jeff Anderson reminds us in the commentary that he just wrote for Lifeway that ancient authors had no issue using irony, satire, and humor in the production of historical literature. In fact, they used those devices to drive their points home. As modern students, we need to remember that it was normative in the ancient Near East to assume that the divine world was connected to and present in the physical world. In a righteous display of humility, church, and that's what we need to display, humility, We must be ready to admit that no simple solution exists. To those who adopt the historical interpretation, they have to recognize that fully satisfactory answers to some of the questions raised are just not available. While a selection of parabolic and religious fiction interpretation necessitates coming to grips with both the extraordinary as well as Jesus' use of Jonah in the gospel. So once again, pick your poison because the argument is far from settled. As for the New Testament connections, my first response would be, well, what about the Old Testament connections? Because there's probably more connections in the Old Testament intertextually than from Jonah to the New Testament. And to go beyond that, I'd ask you, are you aware that the Jonah tradition is shared by all three monotheistic faiths? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all talk of Jonah. All three of our holy books make mention of the prophet Jonah. However, to avoid the accusation of dodging the question, here's a few intertextual connections for you. In the Old Testament, the Lord spares the people of Nineveh. Why? Uriel Simmons, an Orthodox Jew, writes this. He's not even a Christian. Just as, his, just as he, Yahweh, spares the Israelites because they are his... Uh, I'm sorry. The Lord spares the people of Nineveh because they are his creatures just as he spares the Israelites because they are his people whom he brought out of Egypt. You know what I love about this statement? It really displays the fact that God shows no partiality, which is a concept through and through in the New Testament. Unconfirmed, but a wonderful tradition. You know, I love those. 
The apocryphal writings of the lives of the prophets claim that Jonah is the son of the widow of Zarephath. Think about it. If Jonah's the widow of the son of Zarephath and Elijah raised him from the dead once and he died in the belly of the whale, he was resurrected twice. Pretty cool, right? It's unconfirmed, but it's a theory on the table. Elijah and Elisha, like Jonah, are prophets whom God called to speak in foreign lands. Elijah never made it, but Elisha closed the loop when he anointed the king in Samaria. That's the fourth time you drop your phone, bro. <laughs> Not that I'm counting. New Testament connections. Jesus and Jonah sleep amid the storm. In both cases, the witnesses who are delivered express reverence to God. Remember, reverence is far from conversion. Jonah and Paul. If somebody tries to argue that reverence is far from conversion, take them to Mark and then ask them where they think Judas is today. Okay? And then watch them stumble. Okay? Unless you're like me and you believe that we don't place judgment on Judas and we actually believe that the same grace that's available to us is available to him. Jonah and Paul. Jonah's presence is a threat. Paul's is a beacon of hope. See the book of Acts. Jonah and the prodigal son, this is probably one of my favorites. In the first half, Jonah's like the younger brother who runs from the father. And in the second half, Jonah's like the older brother who obeys his father but berates his father for the grace that he gives the younger son. These are the connections that we can find in and throughout the Bible, just like Leslie brought one up in the book of Acts herself. So here's the deal. If we talk about the allegorical and the typological interpretations, yes, which credible church fathers held, then the intertextual connections would probably be nearly innumerable, which makes for a fun study. Some are really good and others are kind of a stretch. Finally, I'd like to reference two sort of important things that were not covered in this morning's study, but inevitably they're going to come up in our exegesis. The first is the different word repetitions throughout the book. You're going to find in the book words that are repeated. What does that do? That captures our attention. What are the words that we're looking for? Well, some examples would be cast or hurled, depending on your English translation, cried or called or cried out and called out, afraid and or feared, went down, and finally, the Hebrew word raha, R-A-H-A, which is translated evil in the English language, and it has a multiplicity of definitions in the Hebrew lexicon. Second, we didn't discuss the difference between absolute prophecy and conditional prophecy. But I promise, we'll get into these things at later points throughout the study. That's another one that'll make people mad. Not all prophecy is absolute. <gasps> what? But if God has spoken, read your Bible, bro. <laughs> Oh, so you believe God changes his mind? Uh, yeah, that's what the Bible says. Just because you have knowledge that something will happen doesn't mean you're the causation of making it come about. Correlation is not causation. So God, knowing multiple different outcomes because he has foreknowledge in all things, can change his mind based on how we respond. Don't believe me? Go read Jeremiah chapter 18 this week. Just read Jeremiah chapter 18. There's a few verses in there where you're going to be like, oh my goodness, the potter and the clay. Every Calvinist uses this for Romans chapter 9. 
And they always leave out this one little detail. Read Jeremiah chapter 18. You could be a Calvinist and be here. There are many of them in the body. I'm just not one of them. So what about the theology of Jonah? I saved this for last because I wanted to end on a high point. What can the book of Jonah teach us? Why is it worth studying? Well, let's take these questions in reverse order. I'd argue that it's worth studying. We already said why. It reflects the heart of God. But again, we could say more. Is there another book? This is the question that we should ask ourselves. Is there another book that has had such a massive impact on our world's culture? I don't know. Consider the imaginations of authors, painters, poets, and musicians, and ask yourself if another book has had such great an impact as the book of Jonah. You ever heard of the book Moby Dick? Inspired by the book of Jonah. You ever heard or seen the, the story of Pinocchio? Inspired by the book of Jonah. You ever heard of Bruce Springsteen? Wrote a song in the belly of the whale. <laughs> like, it goes on and on. You could travel the world in the Near East, and you can go to the different um, tombs, and you can just see paintings of Jonah all over them, in all different places, in the Near East and in Asia. Like, it's had a massive impact on our, on our world's culture. But what about the theology, right? Because everybody wants to go home by now. What about the theology of the book? So much could be said, but for the sake of time, we'll close with this. The book of Jonah reflects the beauty of God's relationship with the whole of his creation. It identifies Yahweh as the creator of the world, chapter 1, verse 9, and it highlights his power and his authority over it throughout the book. The book of Jonah reminds us that Yahweh is the God who delivers whether it be the Gentile sailors, and he did deliver them, not spiritually, but physically, the prophet himself, or the people of Nineveh. It is Yahweh who calms the storm, chapter 1, verse 15. It is Yahweh who sends the great fish, chapter 1, verse 17. And it is Yahweh who decides that he would not carry out destruction. Chapter 3, verse 10. The book of Jonah highlights the value of proper human response as the key to experiencing God's mercy. Do we have a slide? We don't have a slide. But if you look at chapter 3, verse 6 through 10, you'll see this reality being made very clear. God holds his creation responsible. Finally, the book of Jonah reveals God's heart to care for all creatures, both great and small. In the close of the narrative, we discover that ethnic Israel holds no monopoly on the loving care of Yahweh. They don't. Why? Because God's heart has always been and will forever be for all people, in all places, from all times. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, just for the wonderful time that we had together as a body. Father, we went longer than we normally would today, but... The blessings are just continuing to abound from what we experienced in worship to Jen and Rob's word to now scratching the surface on the backdrop of the book of Jonah. Lord, my prayer is that you would move in our hearts and our minds in the weeks to come as we work through this book verse by verse. Help us to see what it is that you want us to see, God, not what we think we know or what we want to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.
No, we're late. 